One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. This is The Real Story from the BBC World Service with me, Rithula Shah. From striking schoolchildren to a mass civil disobedience movement which began here in the UK but is spreading around the world, a new wave of eco-activism has risen up and is refusing to be ignored. The new eco-warriors want to terrify us with the stark evidence of climate change, mass extinctions, rising sea levels, harvest failures, the acidification of the seas, the list goes on. And they want to persuade us that the time to take action on climate change is now. This week, members of a movement movement calling itself Extinction Rebellion have been blocking major road junctions in London and gluing themselves to buildings and trains. Their eco-disruption has spread to other cities around the world too. The group grabbed the world's attention earlier this year by undressing in Parliament during a Brexit debate. Their methods are unorthodox, but their message is clear. Changing the way we live and how we run our economy in the face of climate change is a priority there is no time to lose. But the answers aren't simple and their approach is divisive. So what are the best tactics and strategies for such an epic battle to change hearts and minds? When is law-breaking defensible? Is the latest wave of activism just a Western phenomenon or are the developing countries most at risk from climate change also on board? And are governments actually listening? And can these eco-activists succeed in dramatically changing attitudes and actions? Well, that's all coming up on The Real Story this week. And joining me to discuss that are Christiana Figueres, a Costa Rican diplomat with 35 years of experience in high-level national and international policy negotiations. She was Executive Secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change between 2010 and 2016. Joining me from our Cambridge studio are Dr Alison Green. She's a cognitive psychologist and was formerly pro-vice-chancellor at Arden University. She's quit her job to campaign as an activist for Extinction Rebellion. And also in Cambridge is Ross Clark, who's a columnist for The Spectator, which is a weekly right-of-centre current affairs magazine. Welcome to you all. I want to begin by asking each of you, what steps or changes have you made in your life to combat climate change and to help save the planet? Alison Green. I think for me, the most significant change I've made has been to resign from a job that I loved, a job that I saw was, in a sense, representing the pinnacle of my career. There have been other changes, too, in terms of moving towards a meat-free and plant-based diet. I think those are the main things. Do you fly? Do you drive? I drive as little as possible and I try and keep my air travel to an absolute minimum. Ross Clark? Well, like everybody else in Britain and indeed the world, you know, I use uh, machinery. I use a home which is becoming gradually more energy efficient. I think I generate more energy through my solar panels nowadays than I I actually use in my house. My oil consumption has fallen 30 percent. My car does... um, about 50% more miles per gallon than the one I had 20 years ago. I mean, these are all incremental improvements in um, energy efficiency that, and, uh, you know, as we move towards a less carbon-intensive economy. Christiana Figueres. So on the personal side, I gave up eating meat, or in fact all animals, quite a few years ago, maybe, I don't know, five, ten years ago. I can't even remember how long it was. And uh, during the time that I was in London, I was also completely on to public travel. I do travel a lot by air because it is part of my job. 
but I do so responsibly. I have actually pre-neutralized myself several years ago. I was certified by the United Nations Climate what does that Change mean? Convention. I've actually figured out how much my emissions are going to be for my lifetime. I then oh. multiplied it times 10. And through projects in developing countries, I have pre-offset my emissions for my lifetime. Okay. That is not the ideal way to do it, but it is for those of us who have to incur some emissions, and many of us still do, precisely because the systemic hasn't changed. We don't have carbon neutral air transport. We don't have 100% land transport. Then you have to make do with what we have right now, but you have to be very responsible. So there are some confessions and uh, perhaps some steps that you've taken as individuals. Let's think about this Extinction Rebellion protest, which was the starting point in a sense of our thinking about this issue this week. One of the protests is taking place quite near here. And a short time ago, I walked out of the BBC studios and up the road to Oxford Circus. Now, this is a major crossroads between two of London's most famous shopping streets, Oxford Street and Regent Street. It's normally clogged up with buses, taxis, pedestrians dodging the traffic to make their way from one shop to another. The background is usually the sound of horns hooting and engines revving. But this week, there's been a very different vibe, almost like a music festival. And a couple of hours, I went out to see what was going on. We're walking up Regent Street towards Oxford Circus, outside Broadcasting House. And actually, we're just behind a huge rank of policemen. I'd say there's at least about 20 or 30 police officers who've arrived at the Extinction Rebellion protest, which is in the middle of the junction at Oxford Circus. The police have been talking to the protesters and now they're actually physically taking some of them away. And it looks as if they're here to bring an end to this protest. They are, one by one, just taking the protesters away from this site in the middle of London. He's not happy with it. Why not? They're idiots, basically. Self-indulgent, irresponsible, selfish idiots. Why do you think you're not an idiot? Because I think we're all spending our own spare time. This is our spare time, our annual holiday that we are taking here to make a point. working companies, the working population. We are all working working people. That's not obvious, is it? Well, people have... Doing this in your spare time while you're messing up working people. We're not messing anyone up. We're stopping buses, potentially, but that's not all. People are quite easy to get to work by tube. Okay. Self-indulgent, irresponsible, ill-thought-out idiots. What's irresponsible is the fact the government have ignored it for too long. They have. That's a spontaneous discussion that we've just come across here at Oxford Circus. You're obviously a protester. That that gentleman's wandered off now. But how long have you been here? I was here today and I was here yesterday. I had to work Monday, Tuesday, funnily enough. Why does this cause matter to you? Because I get extremely emotional when I see programmes that David Attenborough is putting out. When I read books about how we are basically in the sixth mass extinction, we are losing animal species daily that will never be seen again. That's going to have a massive impact on our ecological system. There are an awful lot of police officers here. They've we just, just followed arrived. them up the road. Yeah, they've just and arrived. And they appear to be taking people away. Yeah, they, they are. are sitting down. Yeah. So do you think that marks the beginning of the end of this protest? You know, they tried this yesterday in Parliament Square. 
they brought in, it was like stormtroopers marching in, they took away a lot of people, and then a lot more rebels arrived, and they took the space back again. So I don't think it's going to be as easy as they are thinking to get rid of everybody. But, but judging by what we heard from that man here, some of the reporting in the papers today, are people losing patience with this? And the disruption? And not as far as we're aware, I've just had two people come up to me today saying they just joined, where do they go for their induction? And you're optimistic. Our, our Facebook page is going up by 4,000 every day. Our donations are going up every minute. So, no, it's not fading away. In fact, it's gaining momentum. We've just had a re- rebellion in New York where they took Brooklyn Bridge. So it's constantly growing. Angie, Angie, thank you very much. No problem. So in the few minutes we've been here, the police are trying to take some of the activists away, but there are plenty of new people arriving. It's going to take a while before they can actually bring this protest to an end, if that's what they intend to do. So you can hear it was really loud and there was an awful lot going on, people coming and going, lots of people just watching what was going on. Ross Clark, is that a justifiable disruption or is it an unfair nuisance? Well, I think that soundtrack says it all. It's just a great big party, isn't it? It's great fun for the people involved, but it's messing around the lives of 10 million Londoners and people need to get to work. Oxford Street, by the way, for those who are not familiar with it, it's not a thoroughfare for private cars. It's been all buses and taxis for decades. It's mostly public transport that's being held up by this protest. There's 55 bus routes have had to stop. There's half a million bus passengers have been put out. It is a hugely irresponsible and self-indulgent protest, just Alice, as the guy said. Alison Green, there we were, the people were sitting about, but there has been criminal damage too. People have stuck themselves to glass, windows have been smashed and so on. Is this fair and is it fair to disrupt the lives of ordinary people who are just going about their daily business? I think it's important to bear in mind that bigger picture here. and It's, it's a campaign born out of frustration of... 30 years of inadequate action in relation to climate change and the ecological crisis that we now find ourselves in. So it has to be seen in that global context. But but you're targeting ordinary people who may feel they've got no real choices in this. It's a mass civil disobedience campaign. So one of the evidential factors around the the campaign itself is that in order to optimise the chances of success, we need to take the campaign to the capital city. So that's why the campaign is in the centre of London. We do it with no real desire or enthusiasm about disruption. We're very apologetic about that. But the fact is that our research shows that in order to try to bring about the kinds of change that we frankly desperately need, we need this level of campaign in the centre of London. Isn't that what democracy is for? I would suggest that what we currently live in is a democracy in name, but is it actually functioning as a proper democracy? I wouldn't To to me, it feels as if it isn't, because I think we are enslaved to a particular economic system. Ross Clark? Extinction Rebellion seem to behave as if they own this issue, own the issue of climate change, as if nobody before they came around had ever thought about tackling climate change. Alison was just talking about 30 years of inaction. We've had 30 years of action. 
It was Mrs Thatcher, by the way, who first committed Britain to reducing carbon emissions back in 1990. Since then, we've had Kyoto, we've had Paris, we've had huge investment in renewable energy, and um, we've had well, carbon taxes. Christiana Figueres, you've been at the table for many of those big events in climate change. What is Extinction Rebellion bringing to the party? Is it, in a sense, rather anti-democratic and rather insensitive towards the needs of ordinary people whose lives it's disrupting? No, 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 I don't think so. I think we have to see this in the history of civil disobedience internationally. So let us not pretend like this is the first time that we as a humanity are doing this. Let us remember that the concept of civil disobedience comes way back from the 1800s. Henry David Thoreau was the first one who put this on the table. And he said, sometimes when the laws that are enacted by government are actually not protecting the interests of the people, then justice is superior. And that is the situation that we have. So we know that we've had a lot of civil disobedience, but very famously, we have had civil disobedience in South Africa. We have had civil disobedience over history in India about independence. We've had civil disobedience in the United States about civil rights. We have had civil disobedience by the suffragettes in the UK. These are movements that have a point in history where the people feel that the laws, or in this case, the policies, are simply not living up to the responsibility that every government well, has. That the, is the situation that we have right now. One of the triggers, perhaps, in the UK for interest in this issue has been Sir David Attenborough. Now, he's probably one of the world's best-known broadcasters on the natural world, and he's become increasingly outspoken on the subject of climate change, and this is what he says in his latest programme. In the 20 years since I first started talking about the impact of climate change on our world, Conditions have changed far faster than I ever imagined. It may sound frightening, but the scientific evidence is that if we have not taken dramatic action within the next decade, we could face irreversible damage to the natural world and the collapse of our societies. We're running out of time, but there is still hope. I believe that if we better understand the threat we face the more likely it is that we can avoid such a catastrophic future. Christiana Figueres, he's a powerful man with a powerful message. Isn't that a better way to tackle this, to get influential individuals who clearly know what they're talking about to speak to a mass audience? He can reach out to lots of people. I think both, right? We're in an and-also world, not in an either-or world, because we have run out of time. What we're seeing on the streets with Extinction Rebellion, what we're seeing on the streets with the young students who are, you know, on March 15th, you had 1.5 million young students out on the streets in 88 countries. All of this is, I call it, blessed outrage. It is outrage that they are expressing because, yes, we have enacted very effective policies both in the UK and in other countries, but it's sadly not enough. And we know very, very clearly from the science that has come out that we have to be on a very clear path of carbon neutrality by 2050. There is absolutely uh, no other two ways about it. As we've been 
talking about, another recent movement to emerge has been the school student strikes. You'll probably have heard of Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old Swedish activist who famously told world leaders at Davos this year, I want you to panic, our house is on fire. And that movement has also spread. Here's a young voice from Africa. I am Nakavia Hilda Flavia. I've just made 21 years old. I'm a procurement student at Kampala International University. My love for nature has made me a climate activist and a striker at Fridays for Future Uganda. Climate action is important for Ugandans because we've experienced incidences due to a changing climate, such as arid conditions eating up the northeast. We've experienced droughts, landslides in Bududa, strong winds, rising temperatures. I decided to strike because we do not have time and I want this action to spread to more African countries. I want to see this Africa-wide. I am optimistic the world can pull back. We just need not to stand there and do nothing. Like Greta says, our house is on fire. We need to do something. These words and her brief character have always rung in my mind. And to me, she is an inspiration. Hilda speaking from Uganda. Ross Clark, students, actually, it's their future. Isn't it fair enough that school children take up this issue in the way that they have? I think what we've got to guard against, particularly with the school children, is this sort of rather casual association. I mean, one of the students mentioned their strong winds, as if we'd never had strong winds before people thought of climate change. You know, what I see when I see these children take to the streets, I mean, part of it is like the Extinction Rebellion protesters, they just want a good day off school. And we spoke to some of them, they'll probably be in the February protests, they were at the climate change protests one day, the next day they were flying off on a plane for their skiing holiday. So you're saying they're rather naive and not particularly sincere? a lot of children of those protesters are... um, traumatised, frankly, by being spun extremist <laughs> stories. And we, if you dare question any aspect of climate change, you get called a denier. But there's an opposite of that, is the climate change exaggeration which Alison, goes on. And are you, are you a fear No, I don't think so at all. In fact, it's interesting sitting listening to the different views. I'm actually wondering whether Ross and I have been reading the same research papers and newspaper articles because, frankly, it sounds like you might be on a different planet. The suggestion that we are moving in the right direction in terms of curbing and moving towards net zero with our CO2 emissions is risible. You know, we're actually going in the wrong direction. Tell us what Extinction Rebellion actually want to do. Sure. There are three objectives. What we're trying to do is empower people and one of our key principles is around telling the truth it's something that we embody but also it's a requirement we're making of the government that they actually tell the truth so that we are all on the same page you want to see a reduction to zero carbon emissions by 2025 is that right we have that set as a second demand and it's hugely ambitious, but I think we need some extremely ambitious targets. We have to aim high and given the abject failure of the but past 30 years, you know, it's really important. Just that... explain briefly what that would mean, though, for the British public. The 2025 target requires the government to come to the table to talk with us and also for us to include some of the expert climate scientists that we have been talking with and who have been supporting us. We need to look at that as a potential target 
and unpack it and see what it actually entails. What no would it entail? Give us an example of the sort of changes that you're asking people to make. So one of the things that it would logically entail would be a dramatic reduction in the kind of leisure flying in aviation. It would mean that we divest from fossil fuels. It would mean critically no longer go ahead with fracking. Christiana Figueres, when people listen to that, they would perhaps realise that what's being asked of them in this rather dramatic projection is a massive change of lifestyle, rich people in the West. Yes and no, because this is not only about individual life changes. This is also about systemic. And a lot of the systemic changes are ones that we are actually now as individuals not even aware of. So let me just stay with the UK. Did the listeners know that in 1970, 50% of the electricity that everyone consumed in the UK was actually coming from coal, which is the most contaminating, most polluting, most damaging fuel that there has ever existed, both for the planet as well as for human life. Today, the UK is down to 4% coal. Much, much better. But you see, Ross would say those are the kind of changes that he did say to us at the beginning of the programme. These are the kind of changes that people like him, everybody has made by buying a more efficient fridge or a more efficient washing machine. What Extinction Rebellion are talking about are real changes to people's lifestyle. The idea that you can't fly on on a foreign holiday, that you can't have a car that burns petrol. These are things that people would feel very viscerally. It's more than just having a more efficient uh, white good in your kitchen. Yeah, but you see, I'm I'm really trying to emphasize that we need both. Yes, we have to completely get rid of coal entirely over the entire planet very, very quickly. And the UK has committed to a complete phase out by 2025, as well as to take renewable energy from 30 percent to 75 percent by 2030. Now, those changes are changes that let's say we as individual people, we do not feel because we're still relying on electricity independently of how it is generated. In addition to that, we all have to give up on irresponsible emissions that are unnecessary. That does not necessarily mean that we are going to diminish the quality of our life. No, I posit that we're actually going to have a better life. I posit that when we have better systems of transportation, when we don't all own a car, but when we are in a system where we're sharing intelligent, efficient, clean transportation, it actually makes our quality of life but much better. But do you better, think to persuade worse. people to make those changes, people who perhaps have taken some of those things for granted, there is an element of fear that is being used to persuade them to make the change? Well, you know, that's interesting because I think that is where I part waters with those that feel that doom and gloom is actually a motivating force. I actually think that where we, and I include myself in there because I have been in this for more than 30 years, where we have failed is not to paint the vision of the much better life that we're going to have once we address climate change. We have not painted that clearly enough to make it a vision that is compelling, to make it a vision that is Uh, something that people want to work for. Alison Green, briefly. I agree with that. I think that what we need to do is have a conversation around moving away from degenerative economics to regenerative economics. I think we do need to have some serious conversations about the vision for human society. You know, what do we actually want to transform into? 
And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service. This week, we're asking if radical protests are the best way to highlight the impact of climate change. Each week, we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. And there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. And do please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. Email us, therealstory at bbc.co.uk. But now, let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Rithula Shah. This week we're asking if a new generation of activists can persuade governments and people that without drastic change, the world is on track for an ecological catastrophe. We're joined by diplomat Christiana Figueres, by Dr Alison Green, an activist for Extinction Rebellion, and Ross Clark, a columnist for The Spectator, a weekly writer centre's current affairs magazine. Welcome to you all. Earlier in the programme, we discussed the nature of the new activism, but now let's talk about the kind of action that governments are taking. Now, under the terms of the Paris Agreement that was signed in 2015, 195 countries agreed to keep global temperatures well below an increase of two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial times. And also they agreed to endeavour to limit them even more to 1.5 degrees Celsius. There was also a pledge to re-review each country's contribution every five years and for rich countries to help poorer nations by providing climate finance to adapt to climate change and to switch to renewable energy. Alison Green, do you think these objectives are being taken seriously? In a word, no. I don't think the UK is going anywhere near far enough. It's even contested at the extent to which we've actually reduced our CO2 emissions. The real figure is actually near a 19%. If we then look at what's given rise to that reduction, a large factor in that has been the recession and the banking crisis of 2007. Then a second factor is an EU directive around the standards for air pollution. And the UK coal stations, by virtue of being too old, it was too expensive to refit them. So it was actually better to phase them out. Mm. So the two key factors that have actually contributed to a reduction are not driven by proactive policy on the part of we'll, the government. We'll hear from the government in a moment. But Christiana Figueres, you were in the room, you were in charge, I think it's fair to say, when those UN pledges were made. How difficult was it to get even this level of commitment? And how do you feel about how people have fared in meeting those pledges? Yes, not an easy task, but a task that had to be done because it is the start. It is definitely not the destination. What is definitely very clear in the Paris Agreement is that those targets cannot be met overnight because they do require very, very significant, deep transformations of the economy that cannot be done abruptly. They need to be done urgently, but they need to be done smoothly. You have to transform the economy in a smooth fashion. Now, having said that, there is an increasing list of countries that have actually already either committed to carbon neutrality or on their way to do so. And they include Canada, Costa Rica, my own country, Denmark, a country as difficult as Ethiopia, Finland, Iceland, Luxembourg, Mexico, Netherlands, Sweden, Scotland. All of these countries are actually moving in the right direction for a much better, a much better quality of life of their citizens. The problem that we have is that we are not moving fast enough. We have to be able to stay 
on track with what is established in the Paris Agreement, which is an increase of emissions every five years. And the first time that we are actually facing that is next year, 2020. That is why there's outrage in the streets, because most countries are not in a position to increase their ambition next year. Ross Clark, a mixed assessment there of the progress that's been made. But do you feel convinced that actually meeting those challenges is going to protect people's lifestyles as well, can protect people's lifestyles? What every government has to do is to balance the need to tackle climate change with the needs of the economy. And it's all very well Extinction Rebellion coming up with this target of eliminating carbon emissions by 2025, just six years' time. But if you take away a source of cheap energy before you have the technology to replace it with renewable energy, you crash the global economy. If you just take away the fossil fuels and say, we're not going to burn them anymore, we're going to um, try and get by on what renewable technology we have at the moment. It's just not practical. No okay. serious person thinks that is a practical target to eliminate I... carbon emissions in six years. Lots of important points there. I'd like to come back and unpack many of those. Let's just hear from the British government before we move on, because the Extinction Rebellion protests in London have really been directed quite directly at them. Before we came on air, I spoke to Claire Perry. She's the Minister for Energy and Clean Growth in the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy here in the UK. And she made a candid admission about her take on the Extinction Rebellion protests. I think I've said, and it's true that I would have been out there myself with them, I think, many years ago. And look, in a way, it's great that this topic is moving from, you know, a niche conversation many of us have been having for 30 years to absolutely mainstream. But I do disagree with them on two points. One is I think they're focusing a lot on fear, not hope. And I actually think this is a problem that with collective action and with enough will, we can solve But in order to do that, we're going to need a really broad kind of consensus to deal with the problem. And I just don't see that disrupting the lives of millions of Londoners is going to win hearts and minds. Oh, and actually, I disagree on a third point, Richard, if I may. A lot of the protests is about actually capitalism is the problem. And if we could just end capitalism, we would solve the problem of climate change. And clearly, you know, centrally planned economies have been amongst many of the worst emitters historically. And also I've seen myself how market-based solutions and technological innovation are actually really rapidly helping us solve the problem. So I I admire the passion, but I don't like the disruption and I don't think their solution is correct. If I can pick up on the first point, though, you talk about fear rather than hope. They might well argue that actually a hopeful message is the one that we've been given for the last 20 or 30 years. And it's only real fear, a real understanding of what might very likely lie ahead is what will make people sit up and listen and actually change their behaviour and make perhaps the sacrifices that are involved. And that's a good argument. But again, I think part of the challenge has been that we've almost not talked at all until now about the progress that has been made. And of course, the UK, people don't recognise this as actually been amongst the absolute leaders in cutting our carbon emissions over the last 30 years. And we've done it in a way that hasn't compromised our energy supply, hasn't put bills up. In fact, bills have gone down. And actually, if we could help the rest of the world to get onto the same trajectory as we've got, we'd be a long way towards meeting our Paris goals. It's undeniable that the UK's made progress, Mm. but even the United Kingdom isn't on track to address the IPCC's targets. Our target is to reduce emissions by at least 80% of 1990 levels by 2050. That's not going to be enough. And the IPCC says that actually we're not going to meet the 1.5 degree Celsius target that was set. 
we know we have to raise our ambition. And in fact, we were the first industrial country when we saw the IPCC report to say to our own Committee on Climate Change, remember, we have this panel of experts, advise us on how we get to a net zero target. When do we get there? What's it going to cost? What do we have to do? In which case, is it possible to aim for 100% by 2025, as Extinction Um, Rebellion suggests? Absolutely. Well, so so again, I think the, again, I admire the, uh, you know, the appetite to go further and faster. I have seen nothing from any expert, no matter what side of the spectrum they've come from, saying that this is at all achievable. We would have to do unimaginably expensive and I think dangerous things in order to achieve that. And frankly, take us back to a lifestyle that we don't have to go to because we can solve so many of these problems. I mean, 30 years ago, when we started this journey, in fact, the first person, Extinction Rebellion hate me saying this, but it's true. The first person that ever talked about humanity's impact on the atmosphere was Mrs. Thatcher on the global stage at a UN conference in 1989. And then the problem was acid rain. The first first politician, perhaps. The first first global politician. Thank you for correcting me. We solved the acid rain problem. We have dealt with the hole in the ozone layer. We can come together with these global solutions. I appreciate that people want us to go faster. But equally, technology may get us to a point where if we overshoot targets, we can claw ourselves back cost effectively. May technology may get us there, isn't there in the meantime an extra burden perhaps on rich Western governments that have benefited the most from industrialisation to do more, more quickly? Well, I think that's a very powerful argument. And that's why us pitching to host the conference on climate change next year is so important, because it is very difficult to look at developing countries and say, no, we're sorry, you can't have cheap energy. On the other hand, many of the countries who are facing these energy choices could go straight to renewables, they could use gas with CCS, there are many, many... But again, if you look at the example of the UK government, you're still pushing ahead with fracking, the attempts at building new nuclear plants are faltering. There's plenty of negatives in the other column. But hang on a sec. So again, we will be off coal completely by 2025. We have done an amazing job in cleaning up our energy system. We are soberly and sensibly looking at whether we should be extracting gas onshore. I don't know how you cook your supper, Ritala, but 80% of the country relies on gas as a source of heating or cooking. We import increasingly our gas. And I think if we can extract gas with the strongest environmental standards in the world and use gas as a transition fuel and create thousands of jobs. That seems reasonable to me. We're over 30% renewable energy sources now. We'll be at 70% zero carbon energy sources by 2030. That's an amazing achievement. And again, you know, we see how to sort out energy. We've got to solve transport. We've got to solve business energy emissions. It is a whole of economy solution. And that's why there are no simple answers. Is this government then resigned to the idea that warming will be above 1.5? Absolutely not. You've got a government who has completely committed to our current targets and asked for advice on how we actually get to a zero net emissions economy. You've got a government who's pitching to host the crucial climate change talks next year. You've got a government who, for the first time ever, had a green financial statement where we said, you know what, it's crazy that we're building new homes with fossil fuel heating. So from 2025, 
all new homes will no longer be heated by fossil fuel methods. That is not a government that's complacent or resigned. It's a government that wants to take the progress we've made and accelerate the ambition, but crucially do it globally, because what you don't want is your industry is paying more for energy when other countries are subsidising it, like happens in Germany, or people suddenly finding they can't afford their energy bills, because that's the way to, I think, turn people off from the conversation rather than get this broad coalition that we need. UK Energy Minister Claire Perry. Alison Green, what you're hearing there is a minister illustrating the idea that democracy is ultimately about compromise. Yes, interesting to hear Claire's take on that. It reminds me of the kinds of conversations I had in my pro vice chancellor role and prior to that. You know, those conversations around the executive table where we were told that everything was okay. The situation was in hand, things were getting better. And, you know, I'm sorry to say this, but unfortunately, that is the kind of discourse. You know, we've become accustomed to governments are measured against their performance. Their objective is to stay in power. And these kind of short term stints in government, for want of a better term, are not really... Well, it's called democracy, isn't it? People get to vote. It's not just about staying in power. It's about keeping the public on side. Well, absolutely. But I think the public have to be told the truth about certain things, particularly on climate change. And, you know, it's understandable. I mean, I totally take Claire's point about fear. I think the public is starting to really feel and to wake up to the fact that we're simply not on track in terms of reducing our CO2 emissions. Ross Clark, do you see any signal then that, that governments may respond to protests, to changes like this? Is it going to change policy? What, the um, Extinction Rebellion protest? Well, no, because public policy is going in that direction anyway. People get very, very emotive and don't really sort of think through the issues. I mean, take fracking, for example, which came up in the Claire Perry interview. I mean, fracking ought to be seen as a way towards eventual decarbonisation. Claire Perry said it's a transition fuel. Because if you burn gas for the same unit of energy, you release only half as much carbon dioxide as you do if you burn coal. We could have phased out coal burning much, much more quickly by switching to gas more quickly. The alternative to that is not clean energy immediately, but imported gas which has been fracked in North America and has been imported in this country via refrigerated ship. That's what's happening at the moment. We could, on the other hand, have our own fracking industry, our own onshore gas industry, which would be, you know, more efficient. Because in the short term, transitioning to an eventual future of renewable energy, fracking is very much part of that. I mean, if you look around the world, which countries have reduced their carbon emissions the quickest you'd be surprised i mean germany's been one of the slowest where the greens are very strong that one of the strongest has been the u.s christiana figueres does that uh, strike you as a model that you recognize i think fracking is still too dangerous for us to incur that natural gas can help us to firm up renewables that are not 24 hours available is definitely true how long we will have to depend on natural gas to firm it up we don't know because we are investing heavily into storage and battery in order to have 100% renewables 100% of the time but what i think is interesting about this conversation ritula is that we are positing that addressing climate change were negative to the economy it's actually the opposite way around let me quote sarah breeden who is the director of international bank supervision of the Bank of England recently, who said climate change, not addressing climate change, my friends, but climate change 
poses significant risks to the economy and to the financial system. And while these risks may seem abstract and far away, they are in fact very real, fast approaching and in need of action today. So it is actually addressing climate change that is going to keep us from the jump to distress, from the abrupt changes that would have to occur in a few years if we do not decarbonize the economy today. Ross, there there was, if I can bring Ross in for a second, because there was the report, as I think you're saying, that was published earlier this week by 34 central banks, including the Bank of England, which suggests that there's no alternative to a transition to a green, low carbon economy. These ideas have become part of mainstream thinking. Well, it's actually a a transition, but a transition requires an intermediate stage, and that's exactly what we will have. I mean, the reason for that is because while the cost of renewables, you know, generating electricity through renewable means itself has come down, we have the problem of storage. These are intermittent, unreliable forms of energy, and they're of very little use unless we have storage facilities, and whether it's batteries or molten salts or whatever you think, these are emerging technologies which are very expensive, and themselves consume large amounts of energy. So, you know, yeah, we need a transition phase and that is going to involve fossil fuels, I'm afraid. I want to touch on an issue that you raised earlier as well now, that we've referred to the fact that this is very much not just an issue for the developed world and for parts of the world that are growing their economies and going through a process of rapid industrialisation there can be a sense of injustice you know just as motor cars and fridges flying and consumerism become part of people's lives they're suddenly deemed to be bad for the environment the global south might feel that it's being made to pay for the mess caused by the richer developed world but there are also many activists who are acutely aware of how climate change is already bringing change and uncertainty for them Mahandra rodriguez is a Peruvian climate activist and one of the founders of the group Tierra Activa Peru. Peruvians are actually living in one of the most vulnerable countries in the face of climate change and that has to do with just how biodiverse our country is, just how many vulnerable ecosystems we have from the Amazon rainforest to the tropical glaciers that we have in the Andes mountains to deserts and other ecosystems that we have in the coastal area in the country. I think Peruvians in general have experience with natural disasters such as flooding connected to the El Niño phenomenon and therefore can very well imagine what the impacts of climate change will look like just because we we have lived it before. We have entire cities in the Andes that have been completely covered by landslides due to natural disasters linked to climate change and which climate change will worsen. So for you, this isn't something remote in the future. It's real. It's lived. When you then look at the sort of protests that we're seeing in London at the moment, the Extinction Rebellion protests, what do you think about events like that? Do you think they mean anything for Peruvians and for what you're experiencing? I think it's amazing. <laughs> I, I see the pictures and I think it's amazing and I think it's it's well overdue. I think this is something that should have happened a long time ago, but I'm glad it's happening now. This is something that is of global importance and I think that countries and communities and populations also have to take on responsibility, but taking into account historical responsibility as well. Do you think that, if you like, rich people in the North, the global North, recognise, have a sense of their own responsibility? And equally, do you think there are people in your part of the world who think, well, hang on a minute, it was our turn to enjoy some of that. And now you're saying we've got to cut back, we've got to change. 
I think there's both. I mean, I definitely think that there are people in the global north that are not aware of their historical responsibility and of the fair share that they have to pay in terms of just how much they've been able to develop because of pollution and because of the emission of CO2 that other communities have not had the chance to do. I think it's not a coincidence that that's not general knowledge and that's not commonly understood because that's how the economic and political system has worked for a very long time. And I think more and more people are beginning to realize that in the face of climate change, because climate change affects everyone, not just the global south. At the same time, there are so many people across the world, and particularly in my context, that don't have access to basic services that are a human right. But these basic services can be delivered in a way that is much more sustainable than has been done in the past. You have a a very clear view and idea of what you want to see happen. But how much consensus do you think there is? I think there's consensus around the impact and around the need to do something to avoid further and worse impacts. I don't think there's consensus around the way to do that. And that has to do a lot with just information and the media and education systems and just general awareness. And again, it's not a coincidence. It's very much connected to our political and economic systems. In Peru, we have extremely high levels of corruption. We're living through a very particular political context right now where people just don't trust the political system and politicians are tied in with large companies that very much have a business-as-usual model. Do you think your voice and voices like yours heard enough? I don't think they're heard enough. Definitely not in terms of the global discourse. And I think more and more there are people who are able to say, okay, we cannot talk about climate change and acting in the face of the climate crisis if we don't talk about people. Mahandra Rodriguez Acha in Peru. Alison, she talks there about social justice. Mm. Is it inevitable then that people like you and her are, in a sense, talking about changing the whole economic system? I think it's important that that is in scope, that it's on the table and that we do not make assumptions about preserving the economy at all costs. I think we really need to carefully consider how we got into this position. And although I wouldn't say that Extinction Rebellion or indeed other protest movements, climate action groups are specifically targeting capitalism, what we're doing is looking at the root cause of the problems. Now, if one of the root causes of the problems we're in happens to be capitalism, then surely that's up for scope for review. Christiana, do you see people agreeing to a change that might actually bring with it some kind of big social economic change, which perhaps they didn't necessarily sign up to? It depends on what you mean by that, right? I mean, if we had the time to reinvent our economic system, then, you know, you might have me at that table in conversation. But frankly, we don't have that time. We have to reduce emissions over the next 10 to 12 years. And we cannot start by reinventing capitalism and then also reducing emissions. Sorry, but, you know, from my perspective, we have to choose what is the most urgent right now. And I would rather use the forces of the market, the forces of price and the forces of demand and supply to actually work in our favor, which they have not done in the past. So I would rather that we give priority to reducing emissions and then those that want to reinvent capitalism, well, then they might have some more time to do it. But frankly, we just don't have the time right now. I want to make it work for us. Ross Clark, is that an agenda you can sign up to? Well, yes, I mean, I 
agree. There is a very strong undertone in the Extinction Rebellion protests of anti-capitalism. I mean, look at what they're doing, smashing the windows, blocking the streets. So it's almost a carbon copy of what went on in the anti-globalisation protests of the early 2000s. And I suspect a lot of the people on the streets today are the same who were on the streets then. I get the impression from this group they are essentially an anti-capitalist group. And climate change is sort of a vehicle on which they've clambered in order to uh, bring about their ideal society. Alison Green, what do you make of that? I think the people that I speak to, the ones that I met in London on the protests this month, in the last few months, are deeply concerned about about the climate, about loss of biodiversity. Though, you know, a part of what we've been talking about in our campaigns, in our actions, has been the grief that people are feeling about the enormous loss of biodiversity. It's something that David Attenborough speaks to. I'm sure he will speak to that on the programme that's being broadcast this evening about the facts around climate change. So, so no, these aren't jobbing protesters. These are people who care passionately about problems that are endemic within the system, problems that we have been facing for 10, 20, 30 years, and the widening gap between the rich and the poor and the accumulation of wealth within an ever smaller percentage of the global population, which frankly is just not right. Ross Clark. But that, that's not true. Global inequality is falling. Poorer countries are getting richer at a faster rate at the moment than richer countries. I mean, look at the economic growth in Europe, North America and so on. It's been quite subdued in China, India and so on, a roaring ahead. And I think the equity problem is extremely important here in tackling climate change that we don't try and say to developing countries, you do not have the right to develop in the way that we did. Christiana, give me a sense of where you would like to see progress be by 2025. By 2025, we have to have a majorly transformed transport system. We have to be well on our way to have at least 50% of renewable energy on the global electric grid. And we have to have solved where are we going to find the financing to do the reforestation and the restoration of degraded lands that we have to do. Right now, everything to do with land, everything to do with reforestation, with restoration of degraded lands, just has not found the capital necessary to do the activities there because that is the safest and longest tested technology that we have to do carbon capture and storage. And if any sector is behind schedule, it is the land use sector. So we have to find the capital to do that. Ross Clark, where would you like us to be by 2025? Well, further down the same road, we're down now. I think hybrid cars will be the norm. I don't think we can jump straight to electric cars for most purposes because the storage, the battery, the range problem. But, you know, hybrid cars will have more um, houses with um, heat pumps by then. You know, we'll be further down the road of decarbonisation and global capitalism will be part of the answer in getting there. And Dr Alison Green. What I would like to see is a world that's transformed and where the economy doesn't come first, where we measure people's welfare in terms of their well-being, their health and factors that do not necessarily include the economy. Well, that's it for this week on The Real Story. Some great thoughts to end with there. Thank you to our guests, Dr Alison Green, Ross Clark and Christiana Figueres. From me and the whole team, that's The Real Story for this week. Thank you for listening.